James chapter 4 is where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Uh, it's been a, a while, and so in case you have forgotten a little bit, or in case you are new with us, let me give you a quick little recap on where we've been in James uh, so that we hit the ground with good traction this morning. Uh, I've asked you to open to the book of James. In fact, it's not a book, but rather it's a letter. And the letter is named after the author in this instance. James is the one who wrote this letter. Now, we believe this James to be James, the brother of Jesus. But that's not how he introduces himself at the beginning of the letter, right? He introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord of Jesus Christ. He doesn't name drop his brother uh, for his own sake. He positions himself as a servant of Jesus the Christ who is high and lifted up. And James, we know, was the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem, a very important leader, a very important voice. In this letter, he's writing to an unknown church. He never names his recipients. But we think that maybe it's likely this church that he writes to is full of Christians who come from Jewish backgrounds, and they're facing persecution. And in the midst of this persecution, this particular church is a mess. There's all kinds of awful things going on. And so this is a letter of loving correction. And sometimes James's correction is quite direct. See, for James, true faith in Jesus Christ is evidenced by the way we live. And so persecution and trials are not excuses for us to live in some way counter to our testimony. Rather, that's where our testimony takes on flesh. So when the pressure cooker of life begins to ratchet up, we root ourselves even more in what we know and believe about Jesus Christ. James calls his readers to whole life devotion to Jesus. And so way back in chapter 1, he's told us to endure trials and that we have to be people who hear the word and obey even in difficulties. In chapter 2, he forbids favoritism in the church. You remember the sort of grotesque picture of people of influence and power in the church being given preference, while those who are not people of influence or power are essentially treated like animals. You can't sit there in that honored seat. You've got to sit here at my feet. It's a sad scene. So James, in chapter 2, forbids favoritism, and he gives us a primer on living faith versus dead faith. In chapter 3, he takes aim at our speech and also at the way we treat each other. And in chapter 4, where we go today, he continues with this theme of relationships, in particular, broken relationships. James is writing to a broken church full of broken people. This church is broken because of interpersonal conflict that only seems to escalate and does not seem to ever get resolved. Now, sadly, churches can be famous for fighting. We are so creative at our disagreements and our uh, anger towards one another. One of my favorite stories from church days of old was a contentious business meeting I was a part of and a faithful brother who I love very much. Uh, showed up with a picket sign for his cause. <laughs> he carried his picket sign in the church. It was fantastic. 
in retrospect, it was fantastic at the time. It wasn't so hot. Um, but we, we can be so creative and we can be so fierce in our disagreements with each other. Not just disagreements. We're going to disagree. But beyond that, it's our fighting. It's, it's when we fight to win. It's when we look to put the other one down so that we can get our way in the matter. And I don't have to convince you of the damage this does to a church and the damage it does to a gospel witness. Fights in the church are one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel. People around us hear about Christians bickering and fighting, and, and why on earth would anyone want to be a part of that? They can just stay home in peace. A fighting church destroys lives in the church, and then it leaves the lives outside the church to their own destruction. And so James, I think he writes this letter with urgency, and when we get to this passage in chapter 4, he writes with extreme directness because he knows Eternities hang in the balance. So, are, are we covering this today because we are a church at war with each other? Hey, by God's grace, that is not the case today. Uh, God has given us a warm fellowship, affection for one another, uh, a, a unity in focus and mission, and we praise God for that. But that doesn't mean we're exempt from what James has to say today. It may mean, in one sense, it's preparatory for the day when conflict arises. But in another sense, it has application today. Because any place where there is discord, any place where there is bitterness, any place where there is gossip or slander, well, James is speaking to us. And those things certainly exist in a church like ours who today has warm fellowship, but still, we're not in heaven yet. We're still a people who are marred by sin enmity between one another, and we need the healing that only Jesus Christ can give. And even if we don't see that conflict is great in our church right now, we may look to our lives and see another scene. It may be that interpersonal conflict, fighting, discord, bitterness, strife, that these things loom large in our everyday lives. So James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 can hit us from a couple of different directions. One, it would call the church, first and foremost, to a Christ-like unity and love for one another. Second, it would speak to us in our daily lives to be sure that we are people who walk in the way of Jesus as peacemakers in a broken world. So my hope today in this passage is that the Holy Spirit will further transform us into a group of Christ followers who are utterly committed to submitting to God and reconciliation among each other. And I think if we study James chapter 4 right, then we're going to take action against every form of strife among us and instead live in humble submission to God and peace with one another. So James speaks today to the needs of a broken church. So I want you to follow along with me as I read James chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. Here's what James writes. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive 
because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Welcome back to James. It's one of the most direct and intense calls for repentance in all of the New Testament. It is a heavy passage. That's because James always takes sin more serious than we do. And we would do well to carry a bit more alarm with us over the condition of our sinful hearts and the lives that come from them. And so James is speaking to the needs of a broken church. And what I want to show you in this passage are four needs of a broken church. Every church or every life broken by conflict and sin and turmoil, James speaks to the things that we need to move beyond that. What do we need when we recognize that we are broken either as a church or as people in our relationships? First of all, we need to recognize our sin. In verses 1 through 3, James calls out the sin very clearly for the sake of his readers. He's not writing to a people who admit up front that they have a problem. So James speaks to it directly. You and I need to recognize our sin. So James opens by asking the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And what's James's answer? He says they come from desires within. So when sin reigns in your heart, it manifests itself always, always, always in broken relationships. There's an external manifestation of the reign of sin in our lives. This inevitable connection between who I am spiritually and who I am relationally. There is no one who has rotten relationships but a righteous core. Sin in me results in sin in my relationships. Now I wonder if if you and I were to rewrite verse 1, if it might sound a little different. We might write it this way. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from other people who are too dumb to realize that you're right and they're wrong? (laughs) It's all their fault, never your fault. And yeah, maybe you said some things you regret, but it's not wrong if it's true, so they need to get over it. 
Let the record show that we do not happily accept responsibility for our sin that contributes to fights and quarrels. We're quick to justify ourselves. We're slow to accept our role in the fight. But James, from the very start, puts the bullseye of responsibility on the reader. Such a poor way to read the Bible if we're only thinking about other people the whole time. This is about me. This is about you. This is for us. In verse 2, James describes the scene in this particular church, and, and it's a bleak scene. James says, you want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You don't have because you do not ask. So here's this sort of back and forth picture. You want something. In order to get it, you kill and you covet. You don't get it, you still want it, so you quarrel and you fight. You don't have the thing simply because you you don't ask God. Now when James says that these people kill each other, I don't think he's speaking literally. I take James to be invoking the words of Jesus who in Matthew 5.21 says that hatred of your brother is the equivalent of murder. Does that sound extreme on James's part? He's certainly a passionate guy, but it's hardly extreme when we stop and consider how effectively words kill people. We attack, we destroy reputations, we rip people down. Our words are effective murder weapons. And James beats this drum repeatedly in his letter. Pastor Dave preached uh, a few weeks ago on the opening verses of chapter 3. And there in chapter 3, verse 6, James says, The tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Like James's point is this. You've destroyed each other to get things. And for what? You didn't get the thing and you've destroyed your brother or your sister in the process. And why is it that these people don't get the things they want? James gives two reasons. Look again at the end of verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Now we love to quote this line as a reminder to pray And trust God to meet our need. You have not because you ask not. And there's a beautiful principle there. And it's right that we need reminders to pray. And it's right that we need to pray and trust God to meet our needs. But I want you to understand how James uses this line. He uses this line to diagnose diagnose spiritual disease. This is not some nice, polite reminder to pray. Oh, you sweet, righteous church... You're lacking some things because you just, you've forgotten to call on the Lord. And so then the church would say, oh, yes, well, let's pray. And then they pray and they get the thing that they've wanted. No, James says you don't have because you do not ask God. In other words, you don't do the most basic thing of trusting and praying. Instead, what you do is you go after the thing you want and leave bodies in your wake. 
This is not a quaint reminder to pray. It's a spiritual diagnosis. You are so broken, you don't even pray. When that advice comes to you from a well-meaning brother or sister, we need to receive it the way James gives it. Not merely as a nudge to go to the Lord in prayer, but to go to the Lord in repentance. There's another reason they don't get what they want in verse 3. James says, When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So do you get a sense of how perverse things are in the church James is writing to? On the occasions that they do pray, they're only after God to meet their wants. You don't pray as you should, and when you do, it's totally perverse. You turn God into your servant. You come to God with your demands, and you say, God, do this thing for me. You make him the servant. You make yourself the sovereign. The way you pray is not thy will, but my will be done. And it's easy sometimes when it feels like God is silent. Our prayer lives don't see much of a response. It's easy for us to complain. God seems far away. Why doesn't he answer? I thought he loved me. Why isn't he responding to me? But have you considered that maybe the things you're praying for don't have the right motives behind them? And have you considered how good and gracious God is to not give you the rotten thing that you and your sinful flesh think you have to have? How good is God to say, no, I'm going to hold back. No, I'm not going to answer a prayer for your destruction. No, I'm not going to answer a prayer for your sadness and your sorrow. No, in grace, I'm going to withhold this bad thing and urge you towards something better. James is writing to a people who are somehow oblivious to their sin. And here at the beginning of this section, he he shines a spotlight on their brokenness. What about us? Are we oblivious to our sin? Do we need someone to really get in our face this morning and talk to us this directly, this boldly, to tell us, look, you're messed up. Your sin inside and out is wreaking havoc in your life. Sister, brother, it's time to return to the Lord. Do we need someone to shine a light on the human toll our sin creates? We thought about how anger might impact our marriages or our parenting or our workplace performance. Have we thought about how deception and lies might affect relationships with people around us? Our sin always has a human toll. And James sounds the alarm not to beat us up, but to rescue us from that destruction. Ungodly actions done with selfish motives destroy people and the church. A broken church needs to recognize our sin in order to run away from it. What does a broken church need? We need to recognize our sin. There's a second thing James points us to in this passage. We need to return to our first love. We need to return to our first love, verses 4 through 6. Look at how James begins verse 4. You adulterous people. I doubt you included that line in any of your Christmas cards this season. (laughs) It's heavy. 
how has James addressed these people previously? He's called them brothers. He's called them my dear brothers. He loves these people. He doesn't hate their guts. He's not here to to beat them up. And he loves them enough to call their sin what it is. You adulterous people. Now what doesn't come across well in our English translations is the fact that the word James uses here for adulterous people is a feminine word. So James has called the church an unfaithful bride to her groom. This is Old Testament imagery. Time and again in the Old Testament, God is portrayed as the husband and Israel as his wife. And so when Israel's relationship with the Lord is damaged by her idolatry, she can be accused of having committed adultery. For example, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20 says, Like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. And Jesus uses similar language in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, when he says that those who reject him are a wicked and adulterous generation. So James follows in line and labels his readers as unfaithful people of God. Why? Because of their friendship with the world. Look at what he says to them in verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Why is friendship with the world so bad? The very idea seems like a Christian concept. I mean, after all, we're told in the New Testament to have a good reputation with outsiders. But what James is referencing here is something of a deeper connection, something of a closer kinship. Friendship in the first century, especially in that Hellenistic culture, it it had different connotations than it does today. This is more than a front porch wave and a, a, you know, a, a little tin of Christmas cookies at the season. This was connecting your heart, your values to another person. So in this instance, to be friends with the world doesn't mean that God holds us accountable for being kind or polite or good or self-sacrificing or sharing meals with people. That's not it at all. It shows a decided intention to live by the world's values, which are not God's values. So this church that James is speaking to, whom he calls friends with the world, they are motivated as the world is motivated. Right? You pray for what you want so you can spend it on your pleasures. Your motivations are all wrong. They're motivated as the world is motivated. They speak slander as the world does. They value material goods over people, as the world does. They fight and destroy each other, as the world does. They do not pray to the Lord, just as the world does not pray. They do not care for orphans and widows in their distress, just as the world does not care for orphans and widows in their distress. As a result, they become enemies of God, just as the world is. And this is what idolatry looks like. You remember our study through Judges a while back? And one thing we saw time and again was that God's people chased after false idols. It's always difficult, I think, for us to make a connection between idolatry in the Old Testament and idolatry in 2018. Because we don't build high places to false gods. 
We don't have Asherah poles in our backyards or temples to Molech lying around the, the countryside. But what James has described here is what idolatry looks like in our modern expression. It's you and I uniting our hearts, our values, our lives with the world in a pursuit to be on the right side of history. We abandon the Word of God and we go in the way the masses tell us we need to go. We allow our culture to tell us what is righteous and what is not. And where the Word of God rubs against culture, we delete the Word of God and we embrace the culture. And then we come to church and we worship and we sing. And when the church goes in a direction that we don't like, we find another church that will go the direction that culture embraces and endorses time and time again. In order to support his argument, James quotes two Scripture passages. The first of those comes in verse 5. And I need your eyes on your Bible for a moment. When I read this a little bit ago, depending on what translation of Scripture you have, my words may not have matched up with the words that are printed in your Bible. One source that I looked at related to this said, James chapter 4, verse 5, is perhaps the most problematic verse to translate in the entire New Testament. Another source said this, um, the preacher should not attempt to make a solid point out of verse 5 because the translation issues are so many. And that's right. I want to show you on the screen what I read uh, just a little bit ago. It's from the New International Version of the Bible that was published in 1984. It's also the same that's in our Pew Bibles. And so here's the question. Before we look at it, you've got to hear the question that sets the stage. The question is this. Verse 5 speaks of someone as being jealous or envious. Who is it? Well, what I read just a little bit ago says this. James says, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? So who is the jealous or the envious party according to the NIV 84? It's the spirit that God put in us. We have this envious spirit. It wars with the people around us. And James says, do you think Scripture says without reason? But there's not a clear connection as to what Scripture James is quoting. We've got some guesswork, some scholarly consensus here and there. But for lay people like you and I, it's a bit of a stretch. So in IV 84, what I read, what's in our pews, says that the Spirit is what's envious in us. But just a few years ago, the publishers of the New International Version put out a new NIV. And here's what the NIV 2011 says. Who's the jealous party in the NIV 2011? Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. So who's the jealous party in this one? God is. Not envious in that he wants what we have, but jealous like a husband for his unfaithful wife. Longs for her to return. Now, 
people who are far smarter and much nerdier than all of us have written all kinds of volumes about this translation issue. And so you get to do the reading and the study on your own and, and decide. You, you can see the, the version that puts God as the, or excuse me, puts the Spirit as the envious party, includes the Holman Christian Standard, or now it's just called the Christian Standard Bible. New King James does that also. The translation that puts God as the jealous party includes ESV, New Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible. So there's, there's not consensus. Bible translation is tricky work. It's not always just a word-for-word endeavor. No translation is ever simply a word-for-word endeavor. It can be hard to communicate ideas, things from one language and one culture to an entirely different. Now, my opinion, for what it's worth, is that the correct translation is the bottom one. And not because I'm so much the scholar, but it is because I think contextually it fits what James is referencing. He has called us an adulterous people that makes God our faithful groom. And so then contextually it makes sense to me and some others that in verse 5, James is pointing to God as the jealous groom who longs for his bride to return. Not jealous in a sinful sense, not jealous in a weak sense, but he's, he's the hound of heaven who pursues his wayward people. The warning to the reader is clear that flirtation with the world brings the jealousy of the Lord. And the Lord demands unwavering allegiance from the people he has saved. And what does God do with his adulterous people? What does he do with the people that he jealously longs for? James tells us in verse 6. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. That's why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Isn't that just like God? The God who is sinned against is the one who extends grace to the sinner. James reminds us what Proverbs 3.34 says by quoting it here in verse 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if we remain stubborn in our sin and in our allegiance to the world, we'll remain in God's opposition. But if we will humble ourselves and return to our first love, God will restore us by his grace. There's so much hope in the Lord. This is a hard passage, but it boils over with hope. We're only two points into a hard four points, and already you might be saying, look, Cody, I'm a wreck. I'm a spiritual failure. Everything about me looks like the world. Nothing about me resembles God. And I want you to remember, God gives more grace. He knows you're a mess. And he loves you. He's made a way for you to be reconciled to him. What does a broken church need? We need to recognize our sin. We need to return to our first love. Here's a third thing we need. We need to grieve our sin. Verses 7 through 10, James tells us we need to grieve our sin. So James continues in verse 7, machine gunning commands to the reader. So since God gives grace upon grace, we should submit ourselves to God. That's what he tells us. Submit yourselves then to God. 
When we submit to God, we're, what we're doing is we're living in accordance with the proper order of things. Previously, he described the way we pray as having wrong motives, as if we are the sovereign, God is the servant. But when we submit ourselves to God, we put things in their proper order. He is the sovereign, the supreme, the omni, the everything. We are his finite creation, saved by grace. Verse 7 holds one of the most popular lines in the entire book of James. He tells us to submit, to God, to submit ourselves to God, and then he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, this is a very popular verse for spiritual warfare, right? Uh, but it's turned into something like a bumper sticker theology. It's been ripped from its context and used as a tool to resist all kinds of temptations like road rage or late night snacking. But this is, this is not a verse about fighting temptation. If you've used it that way, you've not done anything inherently wrong or sinful. We've just used a verse out of context. Resist the devil and he will flee from you is not about resisting temptation. This is a line about how we return to God when our evil desires have led us to other loves. You see, our enemy, the devil, does not want you to submit yourself to God. He does not want you to return to your first love. He wants you to continue to live your life in opposition to God. And towards that end, he will fill you with all kinds of lies. He will tell you that the sin you've committed isn't so bad, and there's nothing that needs to change in you. Or he might tell you the sin you've committed is so huge, God could never forgive someone like you. And in the face of his lies, in the face of his falsehood, you must resist him. And how do we resist the devil? Is it by gritting our teeth and squinting our eyes, assuming some posture, right? No, I resist the devil! James doesn't leave it a mystery. He tells us. Look at what he says in verse 8. Here's what resisting the devil looks like. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and well. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So we resist the devil by drawing near to God. By experiencing forgiveness, what James calls the washing of our hands, the purifying of our hearts. We resist the devil by grieving our sin and by humbling ourselves before the Lord. In other words, we resist through repentance and contrition. It's one thing for us to confess our sins to God. It's entirely another for us to experience grief for our sins. But God's people have often grieved over sin. Psalm 119, verses 136. The writer says, My eyes pour out streams of tears because people do not follow your instruction. Philippians 3.18, Paul writes, For I have often told you and now say again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. In Romans chapter 7, Paul writes about his grief for his own sin. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this dying body? Brothers and sisters, there's not enough grief for sin among us. But there's good news here. 
those who grieve their sins are not left in tears. Verse 10 tells us the Lord will lift us up. Or to use the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Christians who return to God will find his grace in their grief. What does a broken church need? We need to recognize our sin, return to our first love, grieve our sin. Fourth and finally, we need to love our brothers and sisters. Broken church, full of strife, conflict. We need to love our brothers and sisters. Verses 11 and 12. In these verses, verses 11 and 12, James condenses all of his previous comments going all the way back to chapter 1. James is a fascinating letter. When you start reading at the beginning, it's helpful to look ahead. You'll see where things you're reading earlier are going to show up later. And then when you're reading later, it's good to look back and you'll see things there that are being referenced towards the end. And then as you read start to finish, you look to the Old Testament and that makes everything come to life. And then you look to the words of Jesus and Old Testament and words of Jesus. It just The book of James is in a way Scripture in miniature. We get so many powerful words and themes. Here in verses 11 and 12, he condenses all of his statements in this simple line. Brothers, do not slander one another. This same sentiment has been spoken throughout the letter. Chapter 1, verse 26, he says, Keep a tight rein on your tongue. Chapter 2, verse 6, Don't insult the poor. Chapter 2, verse 12, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Chapter 3, verse 6, The tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. Chapter 3, verse 10. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Do not slander. And why should we not slander? Well, he tells us in verse 11. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. Now, what does that mean to judge the law? Simply put, when we slander our brother or sister in Christ, we are willfully ignoring clear teachings of Scripture. We stand as judge over the Word of God. I will obey some of this. I will not obey all of this. My circumstances allow me to jettison these commands and instead act in a way contrary to the clearly spoken Word of God. But we don't get to judge what we will obey and what we won't. If I'm to love my neighbor as myself, then then I have no recourse but to obey that always and everywhere with everyone. James asks at the end of verse 12, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, oftentimes in sensitive conversations, the person on the receiving end, the sensitive one, might say, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. And guess what? He is, and he will. I'm not sure there's comfort in that for someone whose life is marked by unrepentant sin. But we'll take these simple words of Scripture. Jesus says something similar in the Sermon on the Mount and rip them again out of context. You can't judge me. James says, don't judge your neighbor. 
But James is not telling us here that we're forbidden from calling sin what it is. All right? It's not judging to tell a person who is cheating on their spouse that they are committing adultery. That's not judgment. However, it is judging your neighbor if you decide that person is a piece of scum who deserves your slander. What's the alternative to slander and false judgment? I'm going to say love. When we embrace the entirety of God's word, the result will be love to each other. Now, I find James's prohibition against slander and false judgment especially important in our current political climate. Can we talk for a minute, family? I'm, I'm appalled at how the sin in my heart blooms with energy as I think about and talk about politics. And I'm disheartened when I look around the landscape of Christianity and see our gospel voice swallowed up in political vitriol. We show our friendship with the world when we dehumanize rival political leaders and all their supporters. People on the left slander those on the right, calling them racists and bigots. People on the right slander those on the left, calling them snowflakes and socialists. And what does James say? Do not slander one another. Who are you? To judge your neighbor. So South Shore Baptist Church, we must repent of that worldly and ungodly divisiveness in all the ways it manifests itself in our lives. Our entire country is divided. That divide is only growing wider and wider. But the church of Jesus Christ is an oasis of hope and love in a nation drowning in political failures on all sides. The church of Jesus Christ has a message for the world far different from the message our politicians share. The church says to our suffocating nation, we want to show you a place where the law of love transcends party platforms. We want to show you a community where those who vote red and those who vote blue are washed white as snow by faith in Jesus Christ. We want you to see that in our divided country, there is a place where people from every tribe and language and people and nation sing the same song to the same glorious Savior. We want to show you that though we may disagree on policy, we are clear on our mission to make disciples for Christ from the South Shore and beyond. And we want you to hear the story of Jesus Christ, who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who reigns in justice and mercy forever. Brothers and sisters, we must love each other. Here's an opportunity for some soul-searching and serious repentance as we make sure that even when we talk about politics, we do not slander, we do not judge, but we walk in the law of love, the same law of love by which we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So a broken church needs to recognize our sin. We need to return to our first love. We need to grieve our sin, and we must love each other. And what's true for a broken church is true for a broken life. It's amazing to me what we learn about God in this passage. And although James comes hot and direct, what we see of God in this passage is not some angry divine who's just waiting to zap us when we mess up. Far from it. He wants us to pray to him. He delights to give us the things we ask in prayer that are in line with his goodwill. We learn that when we're unfaithful, he is still faithful. We learn that he gives more grace. And we learn that when we come near to him, he comes near to us. And we learn that he will forgive us and purify us from all our sins. And we learn that when we humble ourselves before him, he will lift us up. On the one hand, this is a hard passage because it calls out our sin, but on the other, it is a beautiful depiction of the patience and grace of God for broken people like me and you. His patience and grace can today save you from your sin, or it can mend a broken marriage, or it can reconcile a wounded relationship, or it can give you the courage to forgive. He will mend what is broken. So brothers and sisters, come, let us draw near to God. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, we we do what the passage tells us to do. We draw near to you, and we do that in faith. And we're able to draw near to you not because we're the first actors in this, but because you've come to us first. While we were still sinners, you sent your son, Jesus, the Christ, the perfect sinless one who came and died in our place. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So, Father God, thank you for moving towards us in grace upon grace upon grace. And I know this morning this passage hits on some sensitive areas for all of us because we're all hurting people. We're all people who struggle with sin. We're all people that that need to be healed. So, Father, I pray this morning for my friends in here who are not your followers. They may be religious. They may have some religious activities in their history, but they've not put their trust in Jesus Christ, the one who died in their place and rose again so that they might be saved. God, I ask that in in the portrait we've seen of what the church can become through your grace, that they would be drawn to you, the God who hears prayer, the God who answers prayer, the God who loves sinners and gives grace after grace. And for my brothers and sisters, for all of us for whom sin on the inside manifests itself in relational damage on the outside. God, give us a humility and a maturity as we examine our hearts. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to the brokenness in us and the damage that creates in our relationships. Help us, South Shore Baptist Church, to reflect heavenly unity 
in the way we love each other. Teach us maturity that we might disagree on things without destroying each other. And call us to walk in that better way, the way of love, with our eyes set on that far-off country to which we all belong through faith in Jesus Christ. To you, the only God, we praise you. We give you honor and glory forevermore. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.